pictures on the map and off the map. Um, this has been, uh, so this is the first year uh, graduate student reading. Could you please, can I see a show of hands if, if you have worked with as a TA or in a classroom situation with any of the people reading today? Great, okay. So now you will get to see some of, some of the brilliance that you've heard uh, in the room and some of the love that you've experienced and the guidance you've experienced, you'll get to see it in art form, which can be more jagged and uh, more uh, uh, contradictory and, uh, and at times much more deeply beautiful than the experience of working with a teacher. Um, this class this year uh, has all my props for going through like what I have in 13 years at UCSD gone through as the hardest year in my uh, employ here and stuck together and uh, uh, supported each other's work and come out writing from what I can tell. Um, incredibly strong work in a time when um, I personally have been just basically collapsed almost because of how hard it's been. Um, and I, uh, I really, I, uh, we have an amazing class of writers here. I, I'm gonna get out of the way and, um, and let you see for yourselves. Um, but uh, be prepared to have your minds blown in a way you didn't even know you had a mind to be blown or that blowing could happen. <laughs> you too. Okay. This year I've had the pleasure of knowing, learning with, and learning from Miguel Cinta Solis. In workshop, he famously employs the following technique. He will read your story and consider, if I were directing your story in a movie, I would blank. And he proceeds to envision the story as film. I'm going to try this te technique now. We're going to imagine a dream sequence directed by the one and the only Miguel Zinta Solis. He's casting all of us, we're all in it. In our Zinta-directed dream sequence, we are whoever we say we are on the internet. Our most distant personas reclining in leather-woven lawn chairs atop the great Pacific garbage patch. That's right, our island, a pile of dildos, 3D-printed guns, Happy Meal toy collections melted together by the sun against a post-winter earth. Our plastic island free float floats between the here and the there. Zinta, our director, directs us all to pick up a plastic, a silicone, a rubber relic from the surface of the island, press it to the bridge of your nose, he says, ask it, who am I, what will I be? Zinta instructs us to plead to our poets, our potato or jello or chicken body future delivery machines. These poets say to look up, to search the sky for the red planet. That's where we're going. Before I let him take over, I will warn you in his words. Prepare now to reset the nostalgia router. Prepare to cross a new frontier, a new landscape boundary. Prepare to boldly go where no one daughter has ever gone before. Without further ado, Miguel Zinta Solis. That was awesome, too. Thank you very much. So I wanted to uh, especially dedicate this reading to Cristina de Garza. Uh, this is my last quarter working with her, uh, so I wanted to make sure I acknowledge her before she goes on in the world. Uh, Cristina, gracias a usted, por fin siento que soy parte de una comunidad literaria bilingüe que me aprecia como artista y escritor. So uh, I'm going to be reading an excerpt to you from my novel, uh, which is my thesis project. And so just, uh, I'm just giving you a very, very quick little synopsis of, what's, of what is specifically happening in this scene. Uh, so Manita's the main character, can't decide if today is the day she, quote, is going to begin her new life or, or not. Uh, and the setting is a mercado or an open air market. And uh, there's a pleather PVC jacket that Manita is coveting. And uh, the vendor is using a hook that has an adhesive, it's like a hook uh, glued onto a pole that is stuck on there with an adhesive of the future called plastifoam or plastifuma. Uh, and we're in the future, so as Taylor has prepared us to <laughs> for the uh, voyage into the unknown. 
According to Wikicity, Manitas had photo asked on some occasion, the style of the jackets was originated by a historical figure of pop culture named Michael Jackson. Here, Manitas was ob obligated to open a new tab so that Wikicity could explain who Michael Jackson was. The jacket style was also influenced by Pixar's most recent installment of the Winnie the Pooh Reloaded series, a delightful film that was as entertaining for adults as it was for children. The combination of these styles made this particular type of jacket especially popular because it was modern at the same time that it was retro. The price would certainly be too much. The price would certainly be too much. She had walked by to gaze at the motor jacket many times, but had never asked for pricing. Still, it was the responsibility of the decision that was actually too much for Manitas. Not ready to take it home? I have other styles, you know, maybe something a little more... The woman who sold clothes raised the hook and brought down another PVC jacket. The style was more subtle, more feminine, with convex pouches of fabric for breasts that Manitas had not yet grown, breasts that she did not wish to imagine. Thank you very much, ma'am, but I like this one. I like it best. That boy should buy it already, yelled a woman from the neighboring stall who stared at Manitas with squinted eyes every time she passed through this part of the market. Manitas blushed and returned the motor jacket to the woman who sold clothes. The woman passed the hook through the clothes hanger and raised it carefully to its place between the vest and the ancient grumpy cat sweater. Suddenly, the hook came unglued from the pole and the motor jacket fell into Manita's open hands along with a rain of now liquefied plastifoam. Look at this mess, Thea. Look at what a mess that crappy sold me made. But look, Mika, the woman who sold clothes, was not discouraged. Nothing is stained. That's why I keep the plastic over it. The woman from the neighboring stall who sold plastifoam and other cheap materials for construction and repairs laughed hard and slapped her leg with her open palm. Manitas decided this was the moment. If she did not take the motor jacket, an object so unique and precious, it was possible that she might never see it again. How much did you say it was? The woman who sold clothes took out her eye chalk and scribbled the price onto it with a piece of electro chalk. She showed the total to Manitas, who counted the zeros behind the number 12. There were six of them. Manitas imagined this quantity. Three work, weeks of work, four months of internet, 70 kilos of Nutri-Chicken, the high-quality Nutri-Chicken at that, seven trips to the V-Arcade with Rosita. With what abacus could you quantify the value of this piece of PVC? The weight of indecision made Manitas want to cry, but plastifoam was dribbling down the side of her face, a prosthetic tear. The tía of the neighboring stall, an older woman, threw a rag to the one who sold clothes. Give that to the poor boy. That stuff is super toxic. She's a young lady, Thea. Are you sunblind or what? I, Thea, why do you sell that crap? The woman who sold clothes took the rag and handed it to Manitas. Here, Mija. Manitas took the rag and cleaned herself off with her free hand. Today was the day. What price would you give me if I paid you in cash? In cash? Are you sure? Yes. The vendor took the eye chalk, erased the original number, wrote a new one, and showed it to Manitas. Eleven, three zeros, a five, and another two zeros. She had saved herself a few nutri chickens, at least. Manitas tucked the jacket under one arm and put her backpack on the ground, opening the hidden zipper. The tía and the woman who sold clothes took out their AK-47s. One of them looked left, while the other guarded the right. The woman who sold clothes' rifle was the color of cotton candy. The woman who sold Plastifoam's rifle was lavender. So that was it in English, and now I'm going to read it again in Spanish. And uh, I, so I wrote it first in, in Spanish, and then I translated it into English. Uh. Según Wikicity, se lo había fotopreguntado en alguna ocasión. Este estilo de motor jaqueta tenía su origen en un personaje histórico, el del pop llamado Michael Jackson. Manitas fue obligada a abrir otra pestaña para que Wikicity explique, le explicara quién era Michael Jackson. Y junto con la película más reciente por Pixar, Winnie Pooh Reloaded, una película preciosa porque era divertida para adultos tanto como niños. El estilo de la moto jacket era algo popular porque era, retrato, era retro a la misma vez que era moderno. De seguro el precio sería demasiado. Había pasado muchas veces a ver la moto jacket, pero nunca había preguntado el precio. Pero no era el precio tanto como la responsabilidad de la decisión, que era demasiado para manitas. No te animas. Tengo otro estilo, ¿eh? Si quieres algo más, tú sabes más. La de la ropa subió el gancho y bajó otra chamarra de PVC. Era de un estilo mucho más sutil y femenino, con huecos para un par de pechos que aún no le habían crecido a manitas, 
un par de pechos que jamás quería imaginar. Gracias, señora. Pero fíjese que esta es la que me gusta, más que todas. Que la compre de una vez el muchacho, gritó la señora del puesto enseguida, que, quien miraba manitas con ojos medio cerrados cada vez que pasaba por este lado del tianguis. Manitas sonrojó y regresó a la motoyacket a la señora de la ropa a quien la tomó. Cuidadosamente puso la percha en el gancho y empezó a subir la motoyacket a su lugar entre el chaleco y el suéter ancient de Grumpy Cat. De repente el gancho se despegó del palo y la motoyacket se dejó caer en las manos abiertas de manitas junto con una lluvia de plastispuma roja que se volvió de espuma sólida a espuma líquida con el impacto. Mira no más tía, mira cómo quedó esta, esa cochinada que me vendiste para el gancho. Pero mira mija, la del puesto no se desafiaba, no se manchó nada, por eso tiene el plástico encima. La del puesto enseguida que vendía plastispuma y otros artículos baratos para la construcción y el reparo, empezó a reírse pegando su mano abierta contra su, contra su pierna. Manitas decidió que era el momento. ¿Cuánto me dijo? La señora sacó su iChuck y escribió el, escribió el precio con el, electro, el gis electrónico. Le mostró el total a Manitas, quien contó los ceros atrás del número 12. Habían seis. Manitas imaginó esta cantidad. Tres semanas de trabajo, cuatro meses de internet, 70 kilos de vitapollo y de buena calidad. Siete viajes al mercado con Rosita, con cual haba comentar se podía medir el valor de esta, este pedazo de PVC. Manitas quería llorar, pero la plastisfuma estaba escurriéndose por un lado de su cara y le sirvió de lágrima postiza. La tía del otro puesto, una señora mayor, le tiró una jerga a la de la, ro a la, de la ropa. Dásele al pobre muchacho que se limpie esa cosa, es súper tóxica. Es muchacha, tía. ¿Ya te enseñó el solo qué? Ay, tía, ¿pero por qué vendes esa trachada? La de la ropa tomó la jerga y se la pasó a Manitas. Ten, hija. Manitas tomó la jerga y se limpió con la mano que no llevaba la motoyacket. El día era hoy. ¿En cuánto me la dejas si le pago en efectivo? ¿En efectivo? ¿Segura? Sí. Tomó el iChart. Borró el número original y anotó uno nuevo. Se lo mostró a Manitas. 11, 3 ceros, un 5 y otros 2 ceros. Se había ahorrado unos cuantos vitapollos. Manitas bajó su mochila al suelo y abrió el cierre. La tía y la señora sacaron sus AK-47. La de la ropa se puso a vigilar el lado izquierdo y la de la plastispuma se puso vigilando el lado derecho. La de la ropa tenía un AK-47 color de algodón de azúcar. La de plastispuma tenía un AK-47 color lavéndula. Thank you very much. Majo Delgadillo is a lipidopterophobe. This means that she is paralyzingly afraid of butterflies. You can laugh. Uh, I thought it was pretty funny the first time she told me, and I laughed a lot at her. We were driving home after class. Me, what are the things that disturb you most about butterflies? Majo. Their eyes and tongue. <laughs> y las patitas. And so I started thinking critically about butterflies. In my head, I took a butterfly and magnified it, asking myself, what is there to be afraid of or repelled by in a butterfly? Their oddly textured, multifaceted eyes bolting from their heads, the way their spring-like tongues uncoil and then bend to stab at flowers. And then there's the matter of their muted approach, that soft rustling, the sound of dust rubbing against dust. Me. I gotta say, I'm really beginning to empathize. Maho, they are so fucking ugly. <laughs> Butterflies. Imagine quite literally a fly made of butter. Me. Does it make you mad that people call them beautiful all the time? Maho. Not really. I mean, I get it. They fly and are colorful. But people never really take the time to see them. See butterflies for what they are, really. This is what Maho's writing asks you to do. If you look very closely at it, it makes you look very closely at a thing. It makes you see it and know it and sit with it. Even if the longer you stare at it, the more and more terrifying it becomes. The things that we call beautiful, normal, and safe. Question these things. Be willing to see the wrongness of them. Be willing to see the ugliness in them. Please welcome Mahalo
was very consistent <laughs> um, and things that kind of warned me on this because he was first, but um, I also want to dedicate this reading to uh, Professor Rivera Garza, without whom I wouldn't be here, and without whom I wouldn't consider myself a writer, actually. So that's one thing I have to say. The second thing I have to say is that the third installment in English in this piece has sentences by Argentinian poet Alejandra Pizarni in a translation of uh, one of her poems called Arbol de Diana. So I thought it was important that you guys knew that. Okay, going to go ahead. I have all of my teeth saved on the corner of a news shelf. To keep them from rotting, I place them under the sun to dry, to become nothing but bones with that root. Moisture, as just any other of the riches of youth, is completely overrated, useless. In a huge hole I got an offer, and for the same price lost my baby teeth, my adult teeth, and my naivety at once. So that there's nothing from to grow inside my skull, left here, in fertile soil, the dryness of my gums, the drought running through my body, my incompatibility with creation. Left here, instead of my own bones, vines, stainless steel, conquering. Fighting the urge to reap and chew against the primal instinct of begging for nurture, my mouth now a machine. I can feel the mechanical sounds that come with repetition, the crushing of metallic parts against one another, the rhythm the almost sexual approach of engineering, a sort of machinery ecstasy. There's a mathematical perfection between my nose and my neck, the knowledge of what will never be unpredictable. So I'm a well-behaved girl and repeat after the numbers. I open my mouth, I hide my teeth on a news shelf, drying out my own body. Moisture, as just any other of the virtues of youth, is completely overrated, useless. Pero si escarbo dentro de la memoria, encuentro este otro sonido, la humedad de este otro sonido, la sutil suavidad de la F. Entonces, puedo decir, la sensualidad de este otro sonido, esa capacidad de las serpientes y los seres humanos, el veneno, la utilidad de los dientes que perdí y que reencuentro y que resguardo, la saliva. Y si posiciono mi lengua, esta lengua, entre los dientes, es decir, entre los colmillos, Y si el aire escapa desde mi garganta entre los dientes, es decir, entre los colmillos, y si me detengo y digo, esto no es para ti, este otro sonido es un secreto. If I were to sacrifice a secret, I would say, language is actually a cage, or maybe the lion inside that cage, or more precisely, the roaring the lion produces. This untranslatable knowledge of immeasurable power powerless inside an undesired limit. It is now that sound vibrates through air. To communicate a message, there's energy being used and energy being consumed. It all comes down to the transformative matter of language, the kind of giving and taking. There is no innocence in sound and its production. If I were to sacrifice a secret, I would say, words don't actually enter your body. They pierce you ear to ear. Language rips you open holding you like a butterfly inside a tiny box. A home that keeps you hostage that happens to also be a cage, holding you like the claw of a lion playing with its food. Consumption is the act of consuming as by use, decay, or destruction. Consumption means ripping flesh out of something living. And I've come to learn that meat tastes better when you can be accountant for the ripping. The Smithsonian webpage tells me that a lion roar can be as loud as 114 decibels. 114 decibels are also what live rock music, rock music sounds like. 114 decibels can be transformed to watts, watts being defined as joules per second, used to express the rate of energy conversion or transfer with respect to time. I have been consuming lion roars as I type this. I have been consuming a rate of energy respect to time as I type this. I have been consumed by language as I type this. That kind of giving and taking by use, decay, and destruction. Sound is said to reflect when encountering obstacles, unless said obstacles swallow the waves, the energy. Unless said obstacles consume the energy inside the roaring, the reflection of the roaring. Unless said obstacles are themselves waves that crash and expand inside a certain softness. Language is never soft. Language is never a home. Language is unbuildable. 
language resembles teeth, learning to be responsible for death. Sinking into flesh, then leaving bloodied and satiated. If I were to sacrifice a secret, I would say, words are bulletproof glass, as smooth and artificial. Nothing but coldness inside the eye of a murderer, the echo of a roaring, the roaring itself. If I were to sacrifice a secret, I would say, I enjoy watching cruelty, this kind of giving and taking, consumption consuming myself by use, decay, or destruction. Pero la destrucción es también parte del sonido, es decir, que la destrucción requiere de la R como un rugido que rebasa la repetición, es decir, que la destrucción requiere de la R como el ronroneo entre los dientes. Para decir del lenguaje, si caben las confesiones, se tiene que hablar del artificio, pero no de la memoria, y no, tampoco, de lo que se habita. Confieso, para decir que te arranco, debo de arrancarme el aire. Confieso, en las palabras caben los silencios, pero no las confesiones. Confieso, el ritmo de los roces raspan esa capacidad de mi lengua bajo el paladar. When not fitted for language, the tongue sticks to the palate. The physical act of speaking can sometimes require the guts, the pushing of a trigger. The physical act of speaking can sometimes require a different formation, the lump in the throat, an instant tremor surrounding the scene just before it's already too late. But beware of me, my love, because there is no answer in my tone, just a challenge. Broken glass, too sharp to be silenced, even if my mouth is not fitted. Beware of the air being sliced by sounds, by my sounds. Beware of the silent one in the desert, of me, my love, of the traveler with a decanted canteen, of the moment that comes after her voice has been produced and of her shadow's shadow. Beware of me, my love, for I have nothing to lose. I've taken the leap from me to them, prepared for certain questions posed by the line that divide us. The third word is a mystery that covers itself with an accent and a certain loneliness. I felt my body along with the light, but a body is never anything else than the sum of what its absence can cast, and I've sung the sadness of what's born. The physical act of speaking, a voice leaping through a dusty surface, a voice sleeping through the rails that lead to another country, a voice sleeping through that concept that means nothing, a border, another voice. Afraid is not a feeling but a state, a lifestyle. I am scared of not knowing how to name what does not exist. But beware of me, my love, for I have nothing to lose. As a prey, waiting for the teeth on her throat, moving through fear, moving against fear, moving still, for a minute to see little flowers in the brain dance like words in a mute's mouth, moving still like a fugitive. Beware of me, my love, of my past, of my past things through the security of your homeland, of my being very quiet, of my mouth turning into a machine, of the papers held in my hand, of my third world that will be present, of my crossing through the barrier, of my use of your language to lead me across. Y si los obligo a decir español, si obligo el proceso de pensar en un idioma, en otro. ¿Qué escuchan cuando digo español? El proceso de pensar en el otro, en lo ajeno. El concepto de lo que no puede ser tuyo, ni quiere, ni debe serlo. El signo sobre la ñ que la hace yacer sobre la lengua dentro de la estructura de mi boca. El proceso. Si escuchan español, piensan en la extrañeza, o la lejanía, o el idioma. Y si me detengo y digo el otro, lo ajeno, y digo, y estoy diciendo, esto no es para ti. Thank you. a painter, and also a little bit of a witch. She's originally from Trinidad and Tobago, an island of the Caribbean, for those of you who might wonder. Catherine is also one of the most profound and brilliant persons I've ever met in my life. And after I'm done speaking and she comes over, you'll get a glimpse of what I'm saying. You'll get a glimpse of a human with a deep understanding and deeper questions of what it means to be that kind of complex creature, a human. To now talk about Catherine's writing and present her to you, I must quote a question posed by a friend a couple of days ago. In an email, he asked me, have you read anything that is mesmerizingly beautiful lately? 
It was obviously easy to respond, living surrounded by all of these amazing writers. However, I decided to say that mesmerizingly beautiful is not enough, just to be fair with her and with all of you. To pretend that Catherine's writing could fit only between the sound of those grandiose adjectives is to trick you. It would also mean that I am disregarding a lot of the elements and levels in which Cat thinks and reflects when in front of the white space, whether a page to fill or a canvas to paint. To talk about Catherine Agar, then, I must ask each and every one of you to think about the last time you were confronted by something that was mesmerizingly beautiful, but also about the last time you were confronted by writing that requires something out of you. Not only in the sense that every writing requires the reader to be present and feel the story with their own perspective, but in the sense that the writing will, quite literally, make you ask questions, make you transform your experience while you read and immerse in the, in the experiences that Catherine brings and translates into the page. It is not always a mesmerizingly beautiful ride. Catherine writes, yes, beautifully and deeply, but also painfully about many things. She describes and brings different characters and different scenarios, building images that transform into worlds. And she's also in a way that we as readers experience these changes with her. But she also writes always about relations and about colors and about race, inaccessible spaces that block you out sometimes on purpose and invite you in some others. Her writing has made me think about my own positions, remix of rage and love that her words seem to exist every time I encounter them. Rage and love to others, but also rage and love to herself. A position in ambivalence that is probably the most honest position a writer can have in writing, which allows her to explore issues and portray images and feelings that might not always be nice and comforting, neither for her or for the reader. But that is also excellent honesty and rawness. Her words make meaning on the very experience of existence, making it unapologetic, dark, and fascinating. And inside that contrast, she creates a home for identities that expropriate experiences, turning them into pages that will never pretend to be just pretty or just innocent, but will always be honest, twisted, cruel, and alive. I've been lucky enough to share conversations, readings, letters, teaching practices, and spaces with Catherine. I am very thankful to be standing here right before her, an amazing writer, painter, witch, and friend. It is now with the greatest pleasure and the biggest love that I will shut up and leave you all to listen to my very, very interesting <laughs> <laughs> Some of you have been in my section. Um, <laughs> um, I'm going to read from what I call, what is a series of letters to various people, so those are you. I throw coins. They tell me, chill. Your pinky finger is long and sharp. You keep it as a weapon. You have lost your knife. You are frequently mistaken for a black boy. But how old could I be, love? You're five foot three, mostly muscle, long dreads. We smell each other's hair for hours. I am known for my scent. I leave it on your pillow that first night so that you will not forget. This is so black, you say. Tea tree oil and ylang ylang mixing together. The attention and comfort granted to and by our roots. I seal your ends in the dry shower. Yesterday, you jumped over a fence. It is Boston. A cock slammed your face into the stone, your third concussion. He reached your breast and stopped a moment, but just one. That night, I lit your pipe and waited for you to disappear. I edited someone's essay slowly, for money, ordered soup, watched you in the dark. It is the fall after Mike Brown has been killed and everyone we know suddenly cares. I realize that all of my friends are white in rawer ways. After protests, I cry when everyone, when any, whenever anyone feigns contentedness. Wanting less is a feeling I have always been encouraged to do, to be content. I relish somehow that this is the one place I can show the full weight of that impossibility. I will never want less. I refuse. I feel for my eggs in this country even as they are rotting inside of me, crushed by a fist each night. I stop going to the protests. 
I can't afford to get arrested, and instead, broke, I become a psychic for white allies. They are easy money because no one cares. And yet they, the white ones, perfect ones, oil, hair oilable and hairless, girls with short hair who are thin and able, boys with round glasses and set jaws, are most of whatever the scene is. I promise to care for them, to care enough to make them care and forget control. Partly because I love someone, and partly because I am interested in folklore, and I am just perverse enough to set shop. I have learnt quickly from New England psychics. Use Helvetica. <laughs> you help me make the flyers laughing. I am overwhelmed and cry for them, for us. My work, it seems, is crying. I use a credit card to sleep in motels alone, fill bathtubs with salt. You guide me through this because a hustle is a hustle, and I am doing important work, you say. No one else is able because it is shit. I waver on the edge of wanting to kill or be killed. Good looks, you say. I like the crazy ones. I begin to have dreams of castrating them. I have dreams of castrating myself. I hope that they understand that $60 is a bargain. But eventually I say, pay what you can. I earn more anyway from their pity and surprise at my goodwill, liberal tears. I am paying myself with their stories anyway. You cackle, well aren't you an artist? And by this you mean, I know, ruthless in all the wrong ways, yes. I am guided to dark places. I call my mother silently and the virgin for help. I tell them this to raise my tips. I hope they believe me. My existence is made of their belief. I see no solution but seceding power. I feel the pain of it, the fear, the discomfort. I feel myself simultaneously rising. I am scared that I am irreversibly corrupted. You hold me and say, if you forget, I will remind you the way back, the way black. Everything is a joke. It's the only way. On dark nights with your friends, I sit in the corners stealing whiskey. A room full of niggers someone calls. Is anyone black in this room? We are all in great sorrow, but we cheer. It might still be the happiest time of our lives. We drink. The weed is stale, and we have nothing in common other than a present dictated by a past. We are joined through sorrow, and isn't that, in a way, a blessing? I cannot say these things out loud. I am happy to be in America in these moments, to have these pockets of secrecy, these moments when we can laugh and say, this is how they see us, let's drink to that. We're invisible in the dark. Let's fuck to that. I'm loud and do not care. Um, yeah, um, I'm gonna read um, something else. So this is a list of lost objects. My great-grandmother's cowrie shells, bag of indigo taken from the kitchen cupboard, the light coming from blue chapel glass, the bag was too heavy to carry upstairs, so I went to sleep instead. Mother's Virgin Mary statue, painting marked complete with two fingers of indigo, the scent of the sewer rising through my bedroom window. She went to throw the pieces in the river at night. My Alexandrite ring, blue fabric from a crow, bathed in a tub of indigo and salt. The sound of bats running through the house at night for fruit. A pale man told me to pick that box up, so I did. There is smoke in the front room, and the boys will not leave. I apply lipstick and begin to mark the pillow. When they are gone, I wipe myself. That box was painted with indigo and copal on the kitchen table. My mother brought me an acorn under the black virgin. I looked up the meaning of the symbol by typing. I began to hear myself through other people. Things spoke for me. 
I attended many parties I did not go to. I left myself all over. Um. Before the solstice, we call the corners. So these are three separate things, but my Mercury is in Taurus, so it's really all the same thing, right? <laughs> Before the solstice, we call the corners. I have made some friends among the kitchen witches. We smoke Damiana and kiss. I post flyers. We call ourselves a coven. I bring us stories. Saturday, I meet a white woman at Tasty Burger. She is blind, and she grips my elbow. It is dark outside. I hand her my ring. A sapphire, what do you see? It feels frantic. There is a pulsing indigo light around you. I see your figure, she says. I ask her, are you psychic? She says, I have done some medium work. I have allowed people to see things through my body, with my eyes, but I'm always ruined, unfriended. I hope for so much, but it never happens, and I never see in the way that I expected. I never identified with the blind, she said. And before you ask, I have never been able to see. I've always wished for a partner, someone who will see for me, a pair of eyes. Blindness is a community of people who are very proud, like the deaf. We have a culture that I have never been a part of. I do not care who pities me. My life is to find a way to see. I do not blame those who blind themselves in order to belong. They exist. I just don't. She's giving a talk next week on implants to see. I think I say that if you are asking to use someone as a tool, as a way for you to see, then you will also be viewed that way. I have dreams, she bears, of being beaten, hurt. And where do you think these come from? What do they look like? I'm a slave boy, all small, she says, and the whip comes down across my back until I black out. How long have you dreamt this, I ask. I look at the woman, we are holding hands. Do you think, I ask, that you wish to be beaten because you want speed? I say this without knowing what I mean, and I say, do you think that you see that your blindness is a thing that you will transcend? Do you think that you are trying to ignore what has happened? Do you think that you will be able to see until you accept that you cannot see, that this is what you are, and this is perhaps linked to a past? Can you accept this? Can you see that? I don't know, she says. I know, I say. I hold her, goodbye. Sunday, Damiana when smoked has its effect at the groin. It is rapid. We feel the edges of our bodies and forget its borders. The goal here is to release. We all love our mothers and our mixed bloods. We are not black within this circle. We are not any colors. I do not dare to name the origins. I do not dare to speak of what I have done. I am in love with her, with him, with us, with them. We laugh, how strange. At moments, I am terrified. But this too, how useful it is. Thank you. Let's do it to stand in both corners of the room with loudspeakers. <laughs> yeah. And then they would play a fight song, and Gina would come from the projection booth. And also, if you need to leave, you can go through the projection booth instead of walking in front of me. Um, she would come down from the projection booth with her hands raised, holding a championship belt. And the four, which is appropriate to Gina's personality. It is that much. And it is that round. She doesn't need all of that, but 
Um, and I would hand out glitter right before this reading started, and would just like, <laughs> I didn't have the resources for that, and I'm sorry. Um, I thought about um, playing a collection of noises. I thought of all of the things that Gina does talk about and speak through, I'd rather speak through her in her work, the growl of coyotes, of wolves, of her tati, who in excellent English will say I do not speak English. Um, Lady Nokia, rapping small titties on a big belly. The radio stacket talking about the genocide, talking about the cancer cluster in the literature building, talking about the Kim, Kim Kardashian's breasts and her naked selfies all at once. I could have just played a series of sounds. I could have put Gina's family on speakerphone, which would have horrified her. Um, I could have brought you the contents of her fridge and thrown all of the bottles on the ground and watched you look at the shirts. Um, and I also considered I could just read Gina's work to introduce Gina. Because that is the complexity that Gina both creates and requires as explanation. And that is also the question that her work makes us ask. How do you describe a body that is not present? And within that absence, how do you ask that absence to describe itself? I don't know. <laughs> Gina seems to. And I haven't, but I'm very proud to introduce someone that I'm working with who the writer in the flesh, the body herself, also in person, and like the spirit and all of these things, whatever. Um, not a stand in a replacement who, is, who writes provocative things, complicated, highly intuitive and emotional, and yet more smart and knows more than any of us know. So now Gina Smerbeckian, sitting right here, will speak for herself. <laughs> I also don't know. I have no fucking idea. But here we go. All right. <clears throat> Child's play. From our joints, we are pulling out tendons to make into bowstrings, and then we are stringing violins from the rib cages of children who we have eaten, bored even, horrid, etc. We are monsters, and monsters have no pity. And so, if you are feeling pity, know this. You are no monster, but worse. The first ever violin must have been made with the oud in mind, the oud with its 13 ribs and its 11 strings in the shape of the maker's dead child. How is it to hold it, to play it? It must be, like we think, the couple who lose their child and make a video game with his voice inside it, feeding him virtual candy and giving him virtual bubbles. It is enough for a moment to remember the sound of a child, even if it sounds like crying, as in the oud or the violin, or has the ghostly hollow of mediated computer graphics. It is enough for a moment to remember the sound of a child, especially when it is not your own dead child, especially when you have not killed it or let it be killed. We too do, tru we too do crueler things, though those things you must imagine in your mind. We too do less auspicious things. For instance, we burn your country's flag, the tag of your mattress, the webs of the spider which spells your name in your shed, every link and chain of your bicycle, every misplaced sock, every meter that lights up red when you park. We are monsters. We take victory where we can before the slain hero comes. But listen, somewhere in Galveston, there's a boy standing in front of a mirror, tucking it in and letting it out and tucking it in, and it makes the sound between taping and untaping like the way in which the wet towel comes down on the back of his thighs in the locker room right after it spins white and up and high in the hands of the older boys whose white teeth flash, and that's where he looks and can't look away, dumb, stupid, dumb. Even as the towel cracks down against his ass or his groin, he looks at the perfect white of the older boys, smiles their chiclet teeth, their fussy mustaches just barely announcing themselves like the hair under his arms. And if those boys go home and stand in front of the mirror and jack their muscles, and those boys go home and stand in front of their mirrors and stare until the ends of their noses and the lines of their jaws begin to blur, extend, make them look like a caricature of their fathers who throw balls over their heads into neighbors' yards, curse catches like a girl, who knows? Who knows if, to elder boys, the sound of the towel hitting the groin of the boy sounds like no son of mine, no son. Who knows, for that moment the boy tucks and untucks and thinks of their white teeth and their buzz cut skulls and wonders too if that will ever be enough. Somewhere in Florida, a man eats the face of another man and there's a crackdown on men eating faces of any kind for a while in the news, but only for a while, so who knows how many faces have been eaten since then and attributed to wild animals or monsters like us who laugh at the faceless and eaters of faces indiscriminately. 
And on the news, the man who ate faces is described as a zombie, a druggie, a black man, and never as a man with a mental illness who asked for his Bible before he ate the face of a man with a mental illness without a home. And never mentioned also are the football games at which the man, before eating the face, slammed his head against the heads of others until both or only one of them fell over and heard church bells. Somewhere in the Amazon alone, Hunter lives in 33 acres of rainforest filled with poisonous snakes and spiders and digs himself five feet into a bed in the floor every night until one night he will not rise from it and it will become a coffin like his village with which machete was cut down, from the land with which machete was cut down, etc. Somewhere in Texas, a grandmother pulls open a gun drawer in her home in her, in her home while dusting to dust as all grandmothers do even when their grandchildren are visiting especially maybe when their grandchildren are visiting and touching all the things with their sticky peanut butter and jelly fingers and is surprised to find the drawer empty before she hears the shot somewhere in a murder that is one of many murders a group of protesters blocks the freeway and disrupts the commute of thousands of suits and the suits are so enraged that though typically left they see the sudden truth, this is why there are murders, see, always squawking, always getting in the way, and in turn, the protesters call the suits monsters for misreading interruption in any story as a diversion, when the point is to interrupt with the truth, the moment that we think a story is about escape. Somewhere in the Ozarks, a woman is told to smile, she does so, and the store clerk looks on with pride swelling in his chest and his pants at having changed so effortlessly the demeanor of such a thing as a woman, who, everyone agrees, by all accounts, is made more pleasing to the eye by a smile. She smiles, says like this, and at first he is swelling with pride, just like that, see, easy. But then her teeth begin to rise up out of her gums and her lips stretch further and further, and now he is saying, now, sweetheart, sugar, not so much with the teeth. But she is continuing to smile like this, and then her lips peel further and further until they are stretched, bowstring tight around her face, and then, to the store clerk's horror, continue past the natural line where her lips crease and make their way toward the back of her skull like this. And now the store clerk is, mother of God, what are you, mother of God? And she is laughing hysteric like this. She says, and her tongue with no skin around it to protect him slithers like the snake from the tree and the knowledge thinks the store clerk to smite him thinks the store clerk where it flops ungraceful onto the counter and splits at the tip. And now the sound out of the smiling woman is like that of the sinkholes that uproot Missouri roads in the winter with the gradual erosion of water that, uh, that flows underneath them. And if you've never heard one, you think it was the sound of a child, like the child still holding the hand of the woman smiling, just like the sound a child makes when it slurps milkshakes through a tooth and straw. That's what it sounds like. Can you imagine? The smiling woman's mouth without tongue turned sinkhole and the smiling woman's skull detached from the jaw like the old globe the store clerk's father kept the good hooch in opens up. The store clerk shrieks and the customers gape and the little girl still holding her hand as if so what holds her breath. Somewhere in Texas, a woman is pulled over for a signal change and hung from the jail cell in no particular order of events that can be told or verified by any authority, even through recording, which cannot verify color and so cannot tell this story. This story can be told in any way and make less sense. Whether she was hung first from the jail cell and three days later pulled over for a signal change, who knows? Not even monsters like us can verify. Somewhere in Calais, a refugee enters a consulate and the registrar takes her name and then positions her like a houseplant in the corner of his office, where she is hidden partially by her hair, as she tells him what she's seeing, what she's seeing, and he waters her with his water pail as he does so with his houseplants, all lined up pretty in the corner of his office, while he says, what she's seeing, my God, what she's seeing. They go on this way for weeks, him watering and her telling until the hairs underneath her job unfurl like so many flowers, and the flowers are all bright red and poisonous, and still the registrar thinks he is fortunate to have found such an exotic plant of this. And he waters as she speaks now in flower language, which is not a language that monsters could imitate, but if they could, it would sound well like the sound a child makes when first it learns to laugh with intention. Take it from monsters. Children lie earlier than you think. Learn earlier how to smile and coo, and earlier too learn the girl children than boy children how to make their lips pout, cry for their fathers, to check under the bed for us monsters, even when we are not sulking underneath it. If you were to understand the language of flowers, you would understand the language of girl children who have their own poison hidden in petals that only release them when they are being eaten. If you were to understand the language of flowers, you would understand the language of girl children who exist for plants to reproduce through, and for roots to set through, and for poets to express their most advent sexual release through, and for to be taken care of by fathers and husbands who check under their beds. And so the woman speaks, and the registrar waters, and her, then the poison of the flowers wilts off with her petals, and the petals fall into the teacup the registrar offers her, and the woman drinks it so as not to be rude. Somewhere in Syria, a father stands at the docks and pulls his teeth from his gums, bloody, and plops them into the water where they expand, as only they would from the sheer will of the father. They expand and become lifeboats, and they will take his children to safety. 
Somewhere in Wichita, the grandmother is guessing as grandmothers do, especially when their grandchildren peanut butter, etc. And she opens the gun, and the drawer is empty, and whatever could have left that thing, and then the door is swinging open, and then again, the shot. Somewhere in the Caucasus Mountains, a soldier's head is decapitated and broadcast on the television. His mother can't watch it because her village has no cable, but she feels it in the pit of her stomach. The moment her son's spine comes apart from the base of his skull like a wire is running through her, she opens her mouth to scream, but broadcasts as if she is cable. And the big hands of the clock in the room strike whatever hour they struck at the moment that his spine came away from his skull, and only that hour, as far as she's concerned for the rest of her life. And in that hour, while the pictures of her son's head away from his body are held up over a field of blood, the onlookers would say many things that no one would record on about how blood looks like a spill of poppies so far out in the mountains, or how the head away from the torso looks like a beet pulled out of all its roots. The reporters would instead report on the learned commentators from their respective countries who hold missiles and feel a sense of pride in the seat of their pants, and two Russian newspapers will report that they had no hand in it, and neither did Turkey in any of this collectively. But separately, of course, who isn't looking out for their best interests, of course? And every report says words like geopolitical, real politics, and everyone rejoices when the headless body of the boy to whom was afforded guns, but not a job in the city, a city that up until the moment the village made the news would not have hired him. But now, headless boy with gun in the city rejoices to have the body back. This small victory must be a victory if there will be any. And the mother in the one-bedroom home who's staring at the clock is wondering how the small hands move the big hands, how all of it, all of it, doesn't just stop. Sometime in the 11th century, a man in whatever you imagine, drab or rich garb, holds his dead sons in his arms, sees his future in grief. So instead of burying him, he makes of his dead child's ribs a sound. He stretches his dead child's belly into his fine child's skin, strumming, singing his grief. And even monsters, though we storm children's rooms and scare them from half-cracked closets, we too believe that the body is first and foremost an instrument that teaches about loss. And we think, when we hold our own monstrous children to our own monstrous breasts, how in all the fables and all the stories, we are playing the sound of your children crying and not ours. And we wonder of the dead child and the father and the man who made an instrument of his child's body. How must it feel to hold it, to hear it play? <laughs> All right, I'm gonna take like two breaths. <clears throat> Scene change. Okay. All right, so I have the great honor of introducing Taylor McGill, <laughs> and uh, I'm just gonna do it through my experiences of Taylor. How not to define a Taylor McGill. Taylor McGill is not a bot. I'm my very best when I eat pickles, says Taylor McGill. I'm at my very best when I eat tongue tacos, says Taylor McGill. She is not, though, an easy mistake to make a surrealist. I ride weird stuff because I'm weird, says Taylor McGill. Taylor McGill thinks flowers are pointless because you, can, you can't eat them and they die. Taylor McGill writes weird stuff because she's weird. Taylor McGill is not impartial to words. When asked to shorten her work, she'll economize around the word titty. I'm going to read everything that says titty in it, says Taylor McGill. Taylor McGill is not from California, but New Jersey. He's from New Jersey, answered Taylor McGill about all the best writers and musicians. Taylor McGill once described herself in a bio thusly. Taylor McGill is a nice girl. Taylor McGill is not a nice girl. <laughs> but it helps that I look like one, said Taylor McGill. Taylor McGill plays the drums with that affect. Taylor McGill once played the guitar and called it noodling. Taylor McGill is not interested in semantics, but play. I don't know how to talk about my writing, said Taylor McGill. Do not write that into my intro, says Taylor McGill. <laughs> this is not Taylor talking about her writing and her story, American Cheddar, but it very well could be. I extend the whip to simple delusions. Taylor McGill is not writing about empathy, but about ontology. Taylor McGill is not interested in telling you about words, but showing you the distance between them when they are split like a french fry or wriggle in play. This is not Taylor talking about herself in her story, American Cheddar, but it very well could be. What I suspect but do not fear is that within the headspace there is no thing that resembles empathy. When I shake the head, there is no sound but blood in the ears. Taylor McGill is not empathetic unless she is showing up at my house with dairy-free ice cream because sometimes all there is is the sound of blood in the ears. Taylor McGill is not empathetic unless she's picking up me up from the hospital and then watching the greatest show, British Bake Off, for hours <laughs> without asking if I'm afraid to be alone. Taylor McGill is not telling you her feelings but showing you how the words sometimes miss their meaning. This is not Taylor talking about longing, but it very well could be. 
For some stretches of time, I might refrain from watering the houseplant, place its toes on a crag of return but never crossing, and just when, brown and bending in the direction of a terracotta planter, I would begin the revival sequence, careful tending to, a ritual mending. Is it that I possess a fondness for rarities? I do not miss the city now, but when I think about it, I could really miss the houseplant. This is not Taylor McGill talking about a houseplant, but her insistence on rarity, on occasion, on strangeness, on minuteness, on the infraordinary, on what grows out of our bodies in the wrong places, on sharp words that elicit no responses, on longing to make permanent something that can never be permanent, on saving at the very last moment a thing that intends to grow. This is not Taylor McGill, but it's as close as I can get with words, which are fleeting, according to Taylor McGill. Here now is Taylor McGill. <laughs> plainly, friends, 
But if you're wishing to know more, I will need to trust your aura, and in order to do so, you will be needed to respond with your social security number and the name of the town in which you were born. Friends, blessed greeting. I deploy a tremendous thanking towards you for providing me with the requested information. Allow the Long River to symbolize our distance. I pen SS thanks on 300 paper dinghies and set them loose to meet you on the shore. We are winding a trust web between us. I could love you such as a dog loves an opening door. News for you. The river bird had flown to me in an abscape this afternoon and perched his toes upon my bed corner. He showed his face to the ceiling and opened his beak. He addressed the United States of America. In his speech, he condemned poverty, hate as well, a delicate orator, the intonation of a rare metal artifact shining in the sun. As he pulled in the breath with which to deliver his third condemnation, Monica phoned to worry about my mental state. I told her, not now, Monica, and hung up the phone. The bird was nowhere in my sight line. Friends, I am so hungry for third truth as you are. I made flat my body and placed it beneath the bed. I tore the drapings from their hooks. I crawled to the kitchen and installed both hands in the bread basket. No bird. We are to blame no one but Monica. Suffering the mild fury, I produced the sound Monica as I removed the power cord from my telephone and undressed myself for a shower. As I polished my shoulders, the bird appeared atop the curtain rod. I positioned my hands over my sensitive places. He let down the lid on one of his eyes. I winked in return, but with both eyes accidentally, and when the eyes resumed their unshut position, the bird was gone. A signal as clear as glass ornaments, friends, does it own your attention? Together we step towards genuine life. The care I hold for you is as long as a dark cavern, and so I gift you guidance for the placement of your next step. Unplug your telephones. Good day. This evening I arrived home from the bank to find a full bunt cake in a plastic bag hanging from the knob of my front door. In the present, I hear that my neighbors on our shared porch getting along. A muggy night, I type to you from the front floor of my front room, catching the relief of a breeze through the open window. Isn't life casual? Pals, here all is well. Importantly, do not turn a sleeping eye to these matters. The line is secure. Are you comfy sending a photo? I refuse with all my person to appear in photographs. Firstly, I have no love for exhibit. I sweat every day to confirm my body, and that's enough. If you resolve easily, this is an invitation to have a sit in my skin. Daily push your postures, your rusty fears open. If yes, you are comfy with photos, pose openly. However, prohibit the use of flash. Flash imprints blue black gems, the ego extracted. Stare at a lamplight and try to unsee. It is impractical. If the flash photograph is unavoidable, I stand in the frame close-eyed. For your example, please observe the attached. I urge you, however, to stay open regardless of the volume of light. Confront the ego just this instance. I'll carry you through it. <coughs> Greetings. The bird quizzes our composure. Together, let's tutor our patience. Tell me your pastimes and weight eases. I'll go. I pull at a single hair that keeps beneath my chin until it comes loose. It will take weeks to make a productive grip, a slim and slippery thing between fingernails. What is your favorite habit? Hello. I hope you have not forgotten my tone. It has been several weeks. With regret, I announce our bird remains absent. Each day, I establish the conditions of circumstance in which the bird has already made himself visible. My shoulders are raw from the polishing. Just today, I had been walking out steam on the path beside the Long River. I arrived at a park bench. I discarded an apple core in the direction of a bush. A fly swarm collected on the apple core. My very own causation. An occupation with a swarm and the noise of moving water made me vulnerable to imagining such as this. A brown canoe. I am alone in a brown canoe holding a fishing rod. After two unmoving hours, I stand up in the boat and rock it for a little adventure. I think the gods in me do not smile today. I pick one god and bleed it for answers. Pinching its holy neck, I place it on the hook at the end of my line. I catch a fish and let it go. Aren't we charmed? The imagination's gifting us matchsticks in the darkness. Friends, and two, we are cursed. Every air-suspended, fluttering thing a mind sheet. While we loiter in the meanwhile, I stride to action. I have heard that thoughts can manifest as things. The properties of a thing will correspond to the composition of the thought and vice versa. Nature of thought determines form. Certainty of thought determines clearness of outline. 
As you know, I had mistaken the thought bird for a material one, the certainty in nature of which is unmistakable, but the species of bird is yet to be determined. Between now and our next communication, furnished with the proper knowledge of bird habit and attraction, I will construct a nest. I think to incorporate attractions of my own, and yours too. Pass me your seductions, and together we will authenticate our lives in no time at all. Howdy, beloveds. Today it rains. In my room for silence, I built my chin hair a reliquary of glass in the shape of a television. All day I watched the sky in its mirror and earned a dull habit. Pressing one titty to the window, I smudged an arc at the base of the sun. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you. 